You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network, produced at 3CR Community Radio on Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Nikki Stott. Today on the show, we've got three guest presenters for you. Later, we'll hear from Carly Dober speaking with Jarrah at Blockade Australia about upcoming actions. And Priya Kunjan gets an update from Tuffy at Goongra Environment Centre about the Victorian government's new anti-forest protest bill. But first up, Jacob Gamble touches base with Jason Fowler from the Northern Territory Environment Centre about our old mates, Santos, who are set to start drilling off the Tiwi Islands this month without first obtaining free, prior and informed consent from the Tiwi people, who are now taking Santos to court and challenging this lack of consultation represented by the Environmental Defender's Office. And this is groundbreaking stuff, folks, so stay tuned. Senior lawman and Tiwi traditional owner Dennis Tipakalipa is taking the federal government to court over the Barossa offshore gas project led by Santos, and this project threatens the culture, way of life, and food sources of the Tiwi Islanders who reside there. Mr. Tipakalipa was chosen by his community to represent them and says contrary to Santos's legal obligations, there was no consultation there with the traditional owners. Joining us now is Jason Fowler, who is an energy campaigner and marine biologist from the Environment Centre of the Northern Territory, and Jason's been working on this project. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. Now, give us a bit of background about this case. What is Santos and the government trying to do, and why are they being challenged in court? The Barossa gas field is about 120 kilometres north of the Tiwi Islands, and ConocoPhillips used to own it, um, but they sold the whole lot to Santos uh, a few years ago, and they got out, and they left northern Australia. Um, And Santos have inherited this big kind of white elephant, which they've been trying to develop as fast as they can. And the Barossa gas field is the dirtiest gas field, offshore gas field in Australia. You know, it's um, 18 to 20% carbon dioxide. So you think about that, every, every bottle of gas you pull out of the ground, like a fifth of it is pure carbon dioxide that gets spent straight in the atmosphere. So it's a massive problem there. So what's happened is that the project is in numerous parts. So they have to lay a massive pipeline for 260 kilometres across the seafloor through a couple of marine parks around the edge of the Tiwi Islands and into Darwin. And then they have to drill production wells out at sea to hook it all up into a big ship to pump this gas into Darwin. Originally, way back when ConocoPhillips owned the project, they actually did talk to some of the traditional owners nearest to the pipeline. But in this situation, Santos had the drilling plan approved, which is at the northern side of the Tui Islands, and they didn't even bother going up there and talking to anyone at all. So, yeah, there was a a very clear lack of consultation to the, to the, for the people who actually live there and we'll be looking out to sea and, and looking at all these ships go past every day. And I know you're a marine biologist. What are some of the ecological risks involved in this offshore gas project? Yeah, huge risks, Jacob. Um, you've got the Oceanic Shoals Marine Park there, which is the biggest marine park in northern Australia, and it's full of reef systems. That's why it's called the Oceanic Shoals. There's dozens of reefs all around this big gas field then you come to the two islands and all those western beaches and northern beaches of the Tiwis, 
absolutely beautiful, pristine beaches, and they're covered in turtle nests. Literally, it's the last sort of uh, pristine turtle nesting grounds in, in northern Australia, really. And then you want to, you know, open up this massive industrial project and have heavy shipping and all the all the impacts that go with it coming along that coast. So just to give you some idea of how vibrant and alive this area is, even in close to the Tiwis, you've got huge uh, NT reef fish protection zones, which are like a big marine park to protect the reef fish there, just to give you an idea of how, how pristine and beautiful this place is. Mm, so quite a, a vibrant ecosystem there that sounds like it's going to be at harm from this, this gas pipeline. And equally as important is that this land belongs to the Manapi clan in the Tiwi Islands. What are the impacts of the Barossa gas project for them? Yeah, the Manupi people are, are very much um, traditional people. They live out in country. They go hunting every day and fishing every day. They actually have tourism businesses there. They take fishing charters out to the reef systems that I was talking about, and they clearly go out and use that sea country all the time. Now, the impacts are, well, you can imagine this, right? So you've got at least 20 different kinds of ships to run this gas field. And then those ships are going to go to and from the gas field for the next 25 years. So from Darwin out to the Brossard field and back again. So that means what you're doing is you're developing a massive shipping lane up and down the coast of the Tiwi Islands that was never there before. Now, these ships are driving at, you know, 15 to 20 knots, which is quite fast. And it's been really pr- clearly proven that turtles can escape from ships if they're only going at six knots. But if they're going faster than that, the turtles can't get out of road in time and they get chopped up by the propellers. So this is a huge problem in the Great Barrier Reef, for example. So you, you're sort of creating this big... Uh, turtle mincer all along the coast of the Tiwi Islands. So that's just the turtles. Then you've got um, the risks of oil spills. The Santos, the operator, are, you know, they have a disciplined, low-cost operating model. They say that all the time, and that means that they tend to cut corners and, and not um, use world, world's best practice. You know, they, they're not using double-hulled ships, for example. So if they have, if they have a collision, uh, the fuel holds burst open very easily. You've got a massive oil spill, oil spill on your hands. They're not putting uh, oil spill cleanup gear at Port Melville on the Tiwi Islands, right where you might need it. They're saying, oh, no, we'll, we'll just have it in Darwin in case you need it. Darwin being, you know, 100 k's away from where the oil spill might be. Then you've got well blowouts, which we saw from the Montara blowout in 2009. You might have heard of that one. That was a shocker. So it's condensate. It's not oil, so it's a little bit lighter than oil. A lot of people think, oh, you condensate, it'll just evaporate, it'll be fine. But what they're not realising is that condensate is more toxic and it's particularly toxic to coral spawn and sponge spawn so you're talking about wiping out the, the bottom of the food chain there the, the real productivity would be really damaged by um, any kind of well blowout from condensate and then you've got the actual drilling process itself which uses uh, tens of thousands of cubic meters of drilling muds which are all full of chemicals you know they've got all kinds of, all kinds of acid regulators and detergents and all sorts of stuff in them and all of that ends up in the ocean, like huge volumes. I was really surprised about the scale of it. And you're talking about, it takes sort of 90 days to drill a well. So the first program is drilling eight wells or six wells, um, which take a couple of years. And that's just the first stage. Then they keep drilling for the next 20 years because they need to keep drilling new wells to keep the gas flow up. So that impact is ongoing. It's, it's um, not just a one-off and then you've got, you know, massive gas flaring out at sea as well. You've got huge uh, flames going up in the sky 24 hours a day. Um, and they never showed the Tiwi people this. They, they kept it really quiet. Yeah. For sure. So it sounds like it's threatening not only 
uh, their food source, but also, you know, their, their way of life and their culture. And as you said, some of them also have businesses around these ecosystems. And it, it does kind of follow a, a very familiar story of, you know, a large fossil fuel company not consulting properly with First Nations people. But this case is profound in the fact that it is the first time a First Nations person has brought a legal challenge to an offshore project because of a lack of consultation. So what outcomes are you hoping for, uh, not only in the case, but also on the influence of the fossil fuel industry at large? Yeah, this is a very unique situation because of the uh, NT Aboriginal Land Rights Act. So the Tui Islanders, they own their land. It's freehold ownership. And they clearly have native title rights to the sea country, so it's very clear to prove that they actually have legal rights over that area. So this is the first time we've ever had a big offshore gas project come close to this legal situation where the traditional owners have clear rights. Whereas in the Kimberley, there's a lot of gas projects over there as well. There is no Land Rights Act. There's only the Native Title Act. And also the, the Browse Basin and the Kimberley is much, much further offshore. And most of the operations happen offshore, whereas in this situation... You've got a big gas pipeline literally coming within six kilometres of Aboriginal-owned land, which is you know, a clear impact to those people. So you're going to court, presumably, within the next few months. What's kind of the ideal outcome there? Will they stop the project altogether, or do you think they will just have to go back and do more extensive consultation? I don't really know, to be honest, um, but I would I'd hope they would definitely go back and do more consultation. And, you know... If the consultation shows that these people really don't want this, where's the government going to stop and listen to them? I've been running submissions against these projects for years and they completely ignore the marine science side of it. So perhaps the uh, traditional owner side of it might actually have a bit more power here. Mm. You know, these, these projects have enormous impacts and we just get ignored. So what are your thoughts on how governments can meaningfully listen and act on Indigenous issues as Australia enters the next chapter of our energy transition? Yeah, look, uh, Barossa is a perfect case just to highlight that what you've just said there. You've got the dirtiest gas field offshore in Australia that they want to dig up. Um, you've got this vague promise by Santos to develop carbon capture storage to deal with the huge volumes of emissions off this gas field. Research is saying that develop Barossa, you're actually releasing more, more emissions than what you are making LNG. So it's actually a super polluting. Now, Santos have said that they want to pump carbon dioxide out to sea to the old Bayouindan field, which is in the middle of the Timor Sea, 500 kilometres from Darwin. Now, they, they've, they've got no plans for this. There's nothing published. There's no information out there. They said they might be able to make a decision by 2025. But by 2025, they're already pumping gas and they're already releasing huge volumes of CO2. So it's a little bit late, guys. And the other big issue there is carbon colonialism. So we're literally talking about pumping our pollution back into East Timorese waters, which is where the Bayou Undan field is, and then uh, paying the East Timorese a peppercorn rent to use that old gas field, which we actually sucked the gas out and made all the money out of, and then to use that old gas field to store the carbon dioxide under the ground there. So is that fair? Is that just? Or are we just um, doing a, another horrible thing to the East Timorese? How can our listeners stay up to date with the case and the cause here um, at the Barossa Project? Yeah, it's called stopbarossagas.org. You're quite welcome to have a look at that. It's, we're an alliance of groups from all over the world. There's literally hundreds of people working on stopping this gas project now, so there'll be a lot of stuff happening in the next year or so. 
So that was Jason Fowler from the Environment Centre of the Northern Territory speaking there on a case um, to stop Santos initiating a gas project off the north coast of Australia. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Next guest is Jara, activist and campaigner from Blockade Australia. Hi, Jara. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Kai. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. No worries. Firstly, can you please let us all know who are Blockade Australia? So Blockade Australia organises direct action around the issue of the climate and ecological crisis, particularly focused on resisting what we call the Australian system that is like a leading contributor to that climate crisis. So, yeah, we use sustained direct action to target bottlenecks in the Australian system, like the Port of Newcastle and the Port of Botany. What encouraged you to get involved and how long have you been campaigning against the climate crisis? I've been trying different things to uh, campaign against the climate crisis. You know, like when I was younger, I did a lot more traditional methods of protesting and politics, um, the kind of thing like, attending rallies and calling your local MP and that that kind of stuff. And I felt like none of it was working. You know, there was that election in 2019 where it was meant to be the climate election and the Liberal Party got elected. Um, I don't think Labor has any any more helpful policies, really. But after that, yeah, I felt pretty disempowered by the way the system set up and I started doing direct action in uh, so-called Brisbane in Queensland. And then, yeah, kind of got involved with Blockade Australia last year and did an action in the mobilisation at the Port of Newcastle where I locked myself to a car in the train tracks and, yeah, just been involved since. And um, definitely being involved in direct action feels a lot more empowering. Like you can, I don't know, it's like you can just get a group of people together and then go out and kind of do something yourselves. You know, you're not waiting on an election to come around. You're not having to, like abide by a kind of system that's set up to favour the wealthy and elites. You can go and disrupt like a, an important port like Newcastle or the Port of Botany and you can create a lot of disruption there and not just draw a lot of attention to the crisis but kind of like wield a lot of the power that like we all have um, as individuals that can come together collectively. And yeah, just seeing the room for growth that this kind of movement has is super empowering. Yeah, and I think direct action is really, really, really important because there's that financial hit where the traditional routes don't work. This is just a question. It's so fine if you don't know the answer. Do you know in you know um, monetary value how impactful these actions are? It's, it's pretty hard to know, like, and figures get thrown around and not sure how true they are. But during the Newcastle actions that Blockade Australia took last year in November, uh, the Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce around day seven came out saying that we'd cost the industry or the industries that use that rail network and port $60 million. And I feel like that's a bit of an exaggeration. But, Mm. uh, yeah, it's definitely in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars worth of disruption that have been caused at Newcastle and Botany. You'd be hoping so, right? (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, so I noticed that Blockade Australia was recently um, hitting the mainstream media route. What was the recent campaigning and coverage all about? So the recent, um, yeah, coverage and <laughs> mobilisation that Blockade Australia organised was the Port of Botany mobilisation. And the Port of Botany is the biggest container port on the continent. And a lot of stuff moves through there, not just fossil fuels. Like, it's a really important um, piece of infrastructure for the Australian system. And Blockade Australia shut that down. The rails leading into the port, as well as um, Max, who went into the port himself and got sentenced to four months prison after his action. And... What has been the reaction from the wider public? Yeah, so it's pretty hard to gauge the reaction from the wider public. I think there's been a lot of support for the actions and a lot of um, different environmental groups and different human rights groups coming out in support of Blockade Australia for the action that um, we'd taken. There was a lot of repression from the state. There was a lot of, like, um, there was a strike force set up. People received really heavy sentences from... um, the justice system and yeah there was there was a lot of media coverage um some of it pretty some of it pretty favorable but a lot of it in the mainstream media like the murdoch press and the fairfax press was pretty um yeah poorly framed around yeah blockade australia and what we were doing but what are some of the blockade australia's demands or you know requests for a habitable biosphere (laughs) Yeah, so Blockade Australia doesn't actually have any demands. Um, It's a bit of a controversial and unique point about it. But one of the reasons for that is, you know, what we want is for people to just engage in effective um, political action, basically, which we see as, like, sustained disruption over many days against points of the system that are really important to the Australian system, like these ports or the Sydney CBD, which we're going to be taking action in um, in June later this year. And, yeah, I guess what, what we really want to see is just people coming out and on the streets in resistance to the inaction, um, climate inaction of the Australian system. And we think from that, you know, demands can be made. But first of all, we, we need to get out onto the streets and just resist what's happening. How can people get involved if they want to know more or join in June? Yeah, so uh, there's Blockhead Australia is currently running quite a few info sessions in person and online, as well as um, non-violent direct action trainings in uh, the so-called Melbourne area. There'll be a info talks on um, the 28th of April, and then there'll also be one in Castlemaine on the 4th of May, and a non-violent direct action training. Uh, in Castlemaine on the 29th of May. And apart from that, there'll be lots of other talks and trainings happening. And the best way to check those out is on the Facebook page, Blockade Australia, or the website, blockadeaustralia.com. And, yeah, the best way to get involved is just to come along to one of those and we'll go through the strategy and the purpose in depth and how to get involved in the organising. And, yeah, that's all building up to this mobilisation that Blockade Australia is planning from June 27th to July 2nd in Sydney, um, which will be centred around disrupting the Sydney CBD as much as possible because it's the economic capital of this continent and where we think we can get the most bang for our buck. The climate and ecological crisis is happening. It's all around us. And, you know, an election 
will die waiting for a climate election as a banner that's been used in a number of blockhead Australia actions. Um, Liberal and Labor Party aren't going to save us. The Greens don't have enough power in this election and we really need to act before before the next few years. And the only real way left to do that, I think, is by getting organised and taking to the streets and, yeah, creating these social movements that can challenge the system and change the system. And that's what Blockade Australia is trying to do and trying to start here. Now, Tuffy, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks a lot. So, 24th of May, Andrew's government quietly introduced this bill, which, if passed, will result in significant changes to forest protest laws in Victoria to crack down on direct action. Includes provisions that really ramp up the criminalization of forest protests, with the government claiming that the measures are to enhance the safety and well-being of forestry workers. So, maybe just to start off, if passed as is, what consequences could protesters face with this bill? So basically, the bill um, increases penalties up to 21,000 as well as 12 months imprisonment. They're trying to expand the definition of a prohibited thing to include PVC pipes and metal pipes, as well as um, search and seizure provisions, obstructing and hindering authorised person and machinery and banning provisions. Um, the head of the department, jobs, precincts and regions can vary themselves at their own discretion. Mm. So, yeah, really just like, you know, increased penalties and, and increased jail time for this. Yeah. And the specific mention of PVC is like obviously to crack down on lock-ons. I'm wondering how this bill lines up with similar legislative pushes that we've seen in Queensland, New South Wales and Tasmania over the past few years that have targeted climate justice protesters. Well, I mean, the PVC pipe straight out of the Queensland playbook. But to be honest, these laws, um, in terms of their targeting of forest activists and community concerned about their forests, straight out of the playbook from the 90s, this is absolutely a pre-election gambit. They are quaking in their boots about a green slide down here in Victoria. And so what we're seeing is basically some smoke and mirrors using forest activism as a way to demonise parts of the environment movement, really, and parts of the climate movement, I would say. This chilling effect across climate protests is you know, right into this respectability politics where, you know, only if you're famous and you're rich and you can afford someone to pay for your campaign to get um, get elected and everyone else, you know, is, is not allowed to advocate for themselves, their community and their future um, yeah. on the streets and in the forest. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, the fight to save native forests and old growth forests in Victoria, obviously Gecko has been involved in for a very long time. And, This is really sustained ongoing work where people are doing really grueling on the ground uh, direct action to prevent the logging of some of these really ancient forests and protecting these regions and these ecosystems. So apart from the impact on protesters, what consequences do you see the Victorian Bill and also other legislation nationwide having on local ecosystems, such as these forests, you know, the Victorian Alpine region, for example, despite Victorian government plans to phase out native forest logging by 2030? What kind of scale of damage could we be facing? We need to censor forests absolutely within the climate movement. These are our carbon stores. They protect our water security 
They protect our biodiversity for crop pollination for farmers and they also provide like a huge propensity for green jobs as well, but only if we retain these forests. So in terms of like the impact on the ecosystems, ultimately the Dan Andrews government lied. They lied to the public. They said no old growth logging was happening. It's happening everywhere still. There's over nearly 4,000 hectares that's still registered to be logged right now. The 2030, they have not changed their logging practices at all since the Black Summer bushfires. They've been logging, you know, coming into loggies, recovering forests under the guise that these are dead forests. They're not. They're recovering and we really need them. They've been logging unburnt areas, which are important refuges. We need them to take action now, not by 2030, but now. We actually need it right now because these are critical stores. These are, these are critical for our future. So, you know, we need the climate movement and we need to position ourselves in that climate movement so that people understand that in the climate emergency, any logging is criminal of native forests. I think we've got a pretty good mandate from the federal election that people want action on climate change. I think they're shooting themselves in the foot of picking a fight with the forest movement in the lead-up to the election. I think, you know, we can have some confidence to act in this space, stopping logging on the ground and also, you know, stopping it in the polling booths as well is, is really important. I would really just encourage people to take heart from the federal election. Don't worry about these silly laws that they're trying to introduce. We need to fight to protect our future and we need to use all the tools in the toolkit to be able to do that at the moment. So, yeah, I would really um, encourage people to head over to our Gecko um, Facebook page where we've got a number of, like, links from posts that where you can sign up to be part of our election campaign um, because, you know, clearly this is like an ele- a pre-election gambit and we actually want to give them their worst nightmare, which is a green slide for the environment. And that was Tuffy from Goongara Environment Centre, or GECO, speaking with us about concerns with the Andrews Government's Sustainable Forests Timber Amendment Timber Harvesting Safety Zones Bill 2022. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. And today on the show, we featured a bunch of guest presenters. Priya Kunjan spoke with Tuffy at Goonga Environment Centre about the VicGov's new anti-forest protest bill. Carly Dober spoke with Jarrah at Blockade Australia about upcoming actions. And Jacob Gamble spoke with Jason Fowler from the Northern Territory Environment Centre about Tiwi traditional owners' upcoming court actions against Santos drilling in their territory without proper consent. You can find today's podcast and all the details and links from today's show at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. And if you're already listening via a podcasting service, we would love you to subscribe. And why not rate us and give us a review to help spread the word. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support and the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this show out to you. 
Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy Nam, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. And you can also find us on your socials. So that's all for this week, but don't forget, tune in next week for more environmental justice stories. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire, and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Twenty Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside. I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. A lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.